to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier, myself, Jill Mott, and radio host, Emily Reese. Today, we're talking about Euro beginnings of sorts. I'm going to talk about uh, when we went from an old-style sounding music to a more modern-sounding style music. And I'm going to talk about European beginnings of wine, which gets pretty complicated. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. That was a good one. (laughs) (laughs) That was a really good one. I was like, oh, that was a different, that was a good one. (laughs) Uh, It's the little things. Yep. Hello, Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. How are you today? I'm I'm excited to be recording. Euro beginnings. Euro beginnings. Kind of a complicated and vast topic. I I just am intimidating myself even saying it. Yeah, she's got like 17 pages of notes. I'll talk only about 16, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have many fewer pages of notes, but that's okay. You have to turn the page. I do. I see. You have I have to turn a couple pages. There you go. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> I guess <laughs> when I asked Emily how we could go about talking through Euro beginnings for wine and music, right now and for the past, I don't know, say five, six years in my world at least, uh, the Republic of Georgia has been a really hot topic as the birthplace of wine. Um, and, you know, people talk about the Zagros Mountains and Iran, and there's, right now it's proven that all of that came long before wine in Greece and Italy and Spain. I would venture a guess if we were to pose the question to the majority of folks out there that drink wine, where did wine start? They'd be like, Italy. Yeah. Maybe Greece, because that's what, uh, for the longest time, maybe where we've had oldest relics or people are just... You know, they, they've traveled to Italy. There's the, there's a wine culture there. There's a wine culture in Spain. Mm-hmm. So they, they would maybe say like the Mediterranean basin, which isn't a bad guess. And so I wanted to, with all of the spotlight on the Republic of Georgia and this very, it started in Italy. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about actually where it started in Europe yeah. and how the vine and the knowledge of winemaking and techniques spread through Europe is a really interesting topic. Sure. Yeah. No, I look forward to it. I, I I look forward to drinking. So should we start drinking? <laughs> Last night was a rough one for me, so sure. Why not, <laughs> Emily? That sounds like a really good idea. Yeah. Um, well. Well, I should maybe, should I say what I'm going to talk about, though? Yes, please. We, That's yeah. what I, 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 I You were I just so too thirsty. I'm too thirsty. I'm so, so I got ahead of myself. So I'm going to talk about, there's music that you can hear and you're like, well, that sounds old. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of music that you can hear that sounds old. I mean, Mozart can sound old too. But uh, we're going to talk about when music uh, stopped being what's called modal and started being what's called tonal. So I'll explain those things in much more easy to digest terms than what just happened. But a really pivotal time in Western music when uh, everything just started to sound a lot different. And can you just give me a century? Or uh, what, what, when are you going to start going? Oh, yeah, good call. Uh, right around 1600. 
word. Yep. All right, so I've got about I've got about two thousand years on you. I know. <laughs> I mean, we're going to talk about the twelfth and thirteenth century as well, but uh, just in uh, just briefly. I'm going back to approximately without talking too much about Egypt, like around one thousand BC, which is pretty rad. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not going back that far. Shall, now let's drink. I? Yeah. Okay. Let's get to Greece before we start drinking. Okay. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't mind, <laughs> no. just to kind of keep up with what we're tasting, because I'd like to taste it at the time we're talking about it in history, because it'll make make some sense. The first civilization, I guess, is the best way to talk about it that I that I want to get our heads around is the Minoan civilization. So they were very prevalent. They were living in Crete, on the island of Crete in present-day Greece and the Aegean Islands. And they took a lot of, obviously there were grapevines growing wild all over the European continent. So it's not necessarily like they took grapes from Egypt and brought them to Crete, say. But they did bring, through exchanges that was happening at that time in the Eastern Mediterranean, we have a lot of winemaking methods that were brought over to the Minoan civilization. And they were also trading a lot with the Mycenaeans, which they were a civilization that was living in mainland Greece, in and around mainland Greece. And at that time, we know that Wines were resonated, a.k.a. let's drink wine, Emily. <laughs> okay, nice. So, oh, I don't have a glass. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have everything we need? Nope. We know that wines have been aged in either with resin in and around the stopper of the vessel, in the vessel themselves to line it, or resin, meaning pine resin, steeped in the wine. We know that that's happened since back in like 3000 BCE, one of the first Egyptian kings, his name was Scorpion I, and when they unearthed his tomb, which was on the, the close to the Middle Nile, they found 700 jars, which is the equivalent of the 4,500 liters wow. of resonated wine, obviously to carry with him to the afterlife, right? Right, yeah. I did the math. That lasts me 26 years. That's a long time. It's <laughs> a lot of wine. <laughs> I was like doing the math and I was like, well, half a bottle name, 26 yeah. years. <laughs> Uh, so he brought a lot of wine with him to the afterlife. But when we fast forward from the time of Egypt, the trading with the Mycenaeans, the Minoans, wine has been resonated for thousands of years. Crazy. And in the time of the Mycenaeans and the Minoans, in the, the trading with them, this was happening like around 1500 BCE, they had resonated wines. Why? Because resin had antioxidant properties that had preservative properties that oh. would make wine taste good. And a lot of times wine in antiquity tasted like shit. So they were mixing it with herbs, barks, seawater, and I'll go into that later to make it taste better. But in this case, we are tasting one of the oldest flavors we have for wine today that is likely quite similar to what they were drinking in 
ancient Greece. Amazing. It is a wine from the Spata region. So very close, like a suburb of Athens, basically. Okay. So southeastern kind of mainland Greece. And here, the Yorgas family, it looks like Georgas, the Yorgas family, they've been making Retsina in a natural style in a way that really nobody's doing, meaning they're doing a, a week of skin contact with their Savatiano grape. Savatiano kind of drinks like a Vermentino meets a Pinot Grigio with some packeted yeast, right? Okay. So they're not adding any yeast. They're letting it steep with local pine resin, I think from the Aleppo pine, if my memory serves me correctly. And then they're taking the wine off of the skins, off of the resin, and they're aging it for a short amount of time before they're bottling it with it hasn't been filtered and it hasn't been sulfured. And that's extremely rare. A lot of people will say, God, I don't like Retsina because it tastes like or it smells like pine salt or pines, which for me, this, yes, it smells like pine, but it smells more bit. like rosemary yeah. or juniper than it does like pine salty. Exactly. And that's yeah. this. So this is natural Retsina, which is really cool. What do you think of it? Yeah, I think this is delicious. Like rosemary flowers, a little thyme. Yeah, yeah it's not. It's not piney like a like a Christmas tree candle. No, no, not at all. And it it looks almost like certain unfiltered wines that maybe have a little bit of voile, like a little like floor, that yeast foam that grows on top from the Jura region. Like it, you can. It's got like it's got a deep kind of beeswaxy color to yeah. it, uh, without being gold. Yeah. What about the? What do you think of the palate? It's got a very lasting acidity to it. Yeah, you're drinking wine with pine added to it. Mm -hmm. um, some people are like, that's not natural wine. Like, how can that be natural wine if it's got pine added? Because mm. it's adulterated, right? Yeah. And I think that's, they make a very good point. I think of this as like an attempt to replicate history. Yeah. And to do that in a way that is otherwise unadulterated is really difficult to pull off. It's very good. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Delicious. Really Very fun, right? Perfumey, yeah. Would you want to have this for 26 years in the afterlife? I mean, sure, why not? Word. I, 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 I wouldn't turn it down. I'd maybe want a bloody here and there. Yeah, something. I know. But, maybe yeah. a gin and tonic from time <laughs> to time. But What's cool about, if we fast forward a, a few hundred years, is we're arriving at the time where there's amazing, there's a plethora of great thinkers, writers, poets, People that, when we look at what they've written through history, and I'm specifically looking here at my notes with Hippocrates, who lived in from about 460 to 370 BCE, we know that wine is prevalent at this time. We know that wine is being prescribed as a health remedy to things like AIDS, pain, and childbirth. We're putting things, other agents, into wine to make them easier to get into people's system because people were drinking a lot of wine. Yeah. You know, he prescribed, like, use wine to disinfect. He said two to three glasses of wine a day is good for your health. I'm a big advocate of two to three times of anything that makes you happy <laughs> <Yeah>. is probably <laughs> good for your health and well-being, so it might as well be wine. <laughs> we're at a time right now where wine culture is booming. Wine is very prevalent. It's prevalent being – it's grown. It's being traded and I think I'll stop there before oh. I get ahead of myself. Okay. So we can get into some music that will set the tone. Yes. For the Roman era, perhaps. Sure. Even though it's not in the Roman era. I think yeah. the sound will evoke. 
Yeah, and to your point, you know, we don't know. There's so much we just have no idea about music because music wasn't written down for ages, right? Mm -hmm. Ages upon ages upon ages. So we have no idea. Uh, but we we can go back to Greece. We're not going to do that. <laughs> That's insanity. We're going to focus on when... Uh, I kind of think of it as old world, new world. That's really inaccurate. But uh, we're going to talk about this pivot that happened between a time when composers, when they wrote music, would use things called modes into a time when composers wrote things using major and minor scales. Now, modes are also major and minor too. But the, the, the when we talk about tonality now, we talk about harmony based on major and minor scales. So we're going to talk about how that shift happened a little bit. So we're going to listen to some music that was written in the 1500s based off of a really important set of rules. And uh, then we'll hear how those rules got broken and that, that the breakage of those rules was kind of the springboard that led us to uh, the way music ended up sounding for, for a couple hundred years there. So Sweet. How's that? Is that cool? Yeah. Does that make it. sense? We're on the same page. We're on page. the same page. Right. So what are we listening to first? Well, uh, we're going to listen to a composer named Palestrina. And Palestrina was uh, probably the most famous 16th century composer. And he was from Italy. He was born in a town called Palestrina. And... Uh, the way music worked in Palestrina's time, uh, there were very strict rules about how we would use consonants and how we would use dissonance. So consonants are, if and we're going to talk about intervals, so the distance between two notes, okay? So a consonant interval is one that sounds pleasing. A dissonant interval is one that doesn't. Mm -hmm. So... That can mean different things to different people, but in the 16th century, it meant very specific things. Consonant intervals were things like the perfect intervals, so a perfect fifth. So that's a... a C and a G kind of C thing? C and a G, okay. right? An octave, a C and a C. Right? Or a unison, a C and a C. Okay? Okay. Those are perfect intervals. Other consonant intervals included thirds and sixths, which are actually inversions of each other, so it's kind of the same thing. Okay. Uh, so a third would be like a C and an E. A sixth would be E to C. So those were highly acceptable intervals. Okay. Dissonant intervals were things like a second, so notes that were say, like right CD. next to each other. Yep. yep, right next to each other. A seventh, which is a very strange, it's again, the Same inversion thing, right? of a, yep. yep. So like C to B above it or something like that. Uh, a perfect fourth, so C to F. So th I'm telling you all of this just to tell you that the, the rules for when you could hear dissonance were highly controlled. So when you hear Palestrina's music, you'll, when you hear dissonance, 
it's not going to be on an important beat. It's not going to be on what we would call a strong beat. So if we're in one, two, three, four, your strong beat is going to be one, two, and then three would be another strong strong beat, four. Um, so you're going to hear dissonance in really controlled places. And uh, that's one one facet of uh, Palestrina's music that, that um, got broken by uh, another Italian fellow right around 1600. So let's go ahead and listen to some Palestrina. I wrote here that the dissonance is on the weak beats. Yes. Okay, so I just want to make sure that that's... Exactly. So how, how I'm understanding that after listening to it and writing yep. it down, I just want to make sure that I'm... Yep, so dissonance... Wasn't hearing things wrong. Not on strong beats, dissonance only on weak beats. Also dissonance as passing tones. So like part of if we go C to D to E. Then you can hear that D on... Like on the way to. On the way to. Okay. Yep, yep. We're going to listen to a piece by Palestrina called, oh, I can't decide which one to start. Let's start with the the piece for Mass. It's called Veni Sponsa Christi. Another thing we hear a lot of that you'll hear in this tune is, especially with Palestrina, lots of um, stepwise motion with the voices. They're not leaping around a lot. And if you look at the score, when Palestrina does write in leaps, there are rules for how those leaps are, are uh, left behind. So if a voice leaps up five notes, then they are supposed to immediately go down in a stepwise motion. Conversely, if the voice jumps down uh, five notes or eight notes or three notes, maybe not three, but... Does it have to come back in a stepwise fashion? A very famous music theory book came out that talked about how to write music in this style and used Palestrina's music as the example because this was how Palestrina wrote and ergo... Everyone should write like this. Okay. So not everyone agreed, and that's when music started to get more interesting. Not that this isn't interesting. It's beautiful. And Mm -hmm. there's so much interesting going on there because the rules are so strict. It's ridiculous. All the rules he's following there to create music, it's really crazy. And so Um, when we talk about, like, I'm going from one being, say, resonated, say, quote, unquote, adulterated, and then how is the vine traveling around in technique in music when we're thinking of Euro beginnings, when we're yeah. thinking of the way music starts to sound more quote-unquote modern, Yeah, we're thinking there was a set of rules, the set of rules had a thousand other things in it than we're going to talk about today, yeah. but like the what you're speaking of is if you had dissonance, it needed to happen like this, and if you jumped up, it had to go back down like that, and so yeah. we're going to talk about some rule breakers that... Yes. Okay. Palestrina wrote based off of modes, so that 
piece that we just heard. In fact, both are in a mode called G Mixolydian. This is what a G major scale sounds like, not Mixolydian. This is what the major scale sounds like. And this is what G Mixolydian sounds like. So it's not the same as being in C major or F minor. And what is a mode? Modes are a set of scales, and this was how, for hundreds of years, composers wrote music using these modes. And we've talked about modes before on the show, where if you look at a piano keyboard and you go from C to C... That's a major scale, and that mode is called Ionian. That's the name of the major scale. If you go from D to D and play all the white keys, just like you did when you went from C to C, but if you go from D to D and play all the white keys, you'll hear a different sounding scale. It was different ways of them thinking of scales that were based off of, you know, you're doing the white keys, D to D, E to E, F to F. Yeah, but I mean, then you can transpose those freely, right? So you can have C mixolydian, just like you can have G mixolydian, or you can have, you know, there's, as I said, the name of the major scale is a mode called Ionian mode. So, you know, there's 12 major scales, there's 12 Ionian modes, okay? Okay. And then with modes there's not the same harmonic relationship that ends up happening. So right now when we are listening to Palestrina, Mm -hmm. we're listening in a mode. Yep. Okay, we're not listening in a key. Exactly. What are we going to listen to next? Well, let's drink first. (laughs) (laughs) I love how mine is always like, let's drink. Yeah. And then it's like, (laughs) nobody wants to learn about wine. They just want to flip and drink it. Let's learn about it while we drink it. And I'm out, by the way. Love both of those things. (laughs) Love all three. This wine's getting a little... Mouse, mouse. Yep. Uh, I could taste it on the second drink. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The wine is um, quite inconsistent in the fact that, um, and not all the vintages that I've tasted are like this, but some vintages are, they get a little bit mousy, which we've talked about in the past, that little bit of bacteria that can make wine do some things that maybe we aren't so happy with on the finish. Yeah, it just tastes like Fritos. Yep. And it can get penetratingly worse as yeah. it goes. And then sometimes bottled the same vintage, different bottles like don't have that. So it's kind of, it's, it's disappointing and really fun to taste. We left off at resonated wines, right? Hippocrates, medicinal benefits, etc. right? Mm-hmm. Around the time of the ancient Greeks, we, we start to see, and, and of course, fast forwarding through some centuries, we get to the time of the Etruscans and the Romans. Now, granted, yes, there was mingling, of course, between ancient Greece, the Etruscans, 
and the Roman kingdom, right? That's Mm -hmm. a a blurry subject, but to kind of separate them into categories. The Etruscans are grossly overlooked when we talk about the history of wine. It, It usually jumps in the history books, it jumps from ancient Greece to the Roman kingdom. The Etruscans, they lived from about the 9th century BCE to approximately the 1st century uh, BCE, and people aren't 100% sure where they came from. They know that they lived, you know, northern, central, present-day Italy, like around Tuscany to all the way south to Campania, and a little further east. We know that they could have had Greek beginnings, but they're not sure. They could have originated in northern Italy, but they're not sure, which is, I think, part of their um, part of the charm of their their culture or their civilization is better said. We know that the Romans, the Etruscans, first of all, were badasses. <laughs> and when we give the Romans and present day what we would consider Italy now, the Roman kingdom, all the credit, yeah. they learned a lot from the Etruscans. Neat. Um, they adopted many practices that the Etruscans were using, like trading wine for money. Yes, the Greeks were doing that too, but the Etruscans were doing it on a very large scale. To creating a taste for wine, the Etruscans created a taste for wine (laughs) abroad. When we talk about regions like Burgundy and we talk about regions that are, you know, very famous in in France especially, it's thought that the Etruscans were there long before the Romans were there trading, creating that desire for wine on a daily or weekly basis or for religious purposes and stuff like that. So they brought that taste with them. The Etruscans were the first to actually practice viticulture and vinication in Italy. Neat. So it wasn't the Romans that were the first to do that. It was the Etruscans and the Romans learned from them. Um, Another thing is they brought Eastern varietals of grapes and started planting them around and decided, oh, what, what, you know, they're making decisions about, well, this grape grows better in this area than that grape. Cool. And of course, like I said before, we have wild Etruscan grapes and, you know, Greek grapes and all that were growing. People were making wine out of those, but the Etruscans were making selections and things that we consider nowadays, like just taken for granted that yeah. that was been part of history forever and it wasn't. Hmm. Uh, a couple other things. Right now, when you drive through almost any viticultural area in the world, you're going to see bush vines, like little shrubs growing in a row, or you're going to see trellised and trained vines all growing in rows. Yeah. In the Etruscan times, they were big on polyculture, which now we're getting back to that, right? A lot of winemakers, you know, they would, in that time, the Etruscans were growing vines up trees. Oh, wow. They would let them, they would either plant them and let them grow wild up the trees or it would be a wild vine. And wonder what the tree thought of that. There was a proof, I like that you said that, because there was proof that the vines were not attacking the tree oh. or vice versa. It was like a symbiotic you know, thing. They took, yeah. And why was that awesome? Because then you have room for your cows to graze and yeah. to hang the laundry somewhere, right? Like you're not, you're not planting it and using all the space that you could be using for polyculture which is great. The Romans took to some of that. The Etruscans were not warring people, as mm. far as we know. The Romans were. Yeah. The Romans conquered the Etruscans. Yeah. They were sort of absorbed into the culture. And we see at the end of the Punic Wars, which was around the first century BCE, is when we see the Roman Empire start to penetrate into Spain. We see 
them start to penetrate into North Northern Africa, Northeastern Africa, Corsica, Sardinia. And with that, I will pause okay. because the vine starts to travel expeditiously during that time. Uh, and we'll get to that in a, a little bit. All right. Well, let's listen to a rule breaker. Yes. And the, the thing that I love about this is that um, – you know, to the average listener, it's not going to sound, it's going to sound old and not interesting, really, I think. Mm-hmm. I love this piece, though. We're going to listen to a super famous piece by an Italian composer named Claudio Monteverdi. And Monteverdi lived from 1567 to 1643. So he's much younger than Palestrina, which we need to take into consideration. So Claudio was like the young new kid on the block, kind of, um, he and his buddies. And in 1605, there was a man who wrote a book who tore apart music by Monteverdi, and he called into question this one piece that we're going to listen to. Um, this man was a musician, writer, theorist, philosopher, whatever the hell, you know, mixed bag, named Artuzzi. <laughs> they usually are. Yeah. Just and Artuzzi's <laughs> book basically is subtitled Imperfections of Modern Music. And so Artuzzi calls out Monteverdi for this piece that Monteverdi wrote called Cruda Amarilli. Cruda Amarilli is something that you just you study when you're in school because he did some super radical things with his dissonance that he just should not have done and just would have been so shocking to hear. And it's so funny for me to listen to it now because it's so unoffensive. It's just you can't you can't even tell that he's doing a bunch of stuff wrong, quote unquote. You know what I mean? And is it sort of like the equivalent of when we all saw certain things on MTV as like teenagers and you were like, Whoa. Oh yeah, definitely. Like that should not be said, done. Yeah, you can't believe you know Madonna burning the crowd. People well, are Madonna, like, any any Madonna video. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, very much that. Okay. And so there there are a couple of things that Artuzzi took issue with. One is that, um, like we were talking with Palestrina, how controlled the difference is between consonance and dissonance, and how often you hear dissonance and where you hear dissonance. And Monteverdi broke a bunch of those rules and put dissonance on strong beats in a lot of cases. So let's listen to a little bit of Cruda Amarilli, and then I'll tell you about the other things that were uh, amazingly innovative about about this piece. But let's first first just listen to uh, a little bit of Cruda Amarilli. When you hear the top voice, which is a man in this instance, there were no women singing back in the day, so I chose a recording that had countertenors, so men singing in their falsetto range. Mm -hmm. Um, The highest voice is about to, and I'll sing it to you, he's going to sing, da-da-da. Now, those first two notes, both dissonances on in the wrong time, uh, it's an unprepared second and an unprepared seventh. So when you hear that, which you're going to hear in just a moment, da, 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 
Artuzzi People were just was like pissed. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So here you go. So another super important thing about this piece was Monteverdi's use of what's called text painting or word painting. So that's using the music to accentuate the words. Now, prior to Monteverdi, text was considered subservient to the music itself. Text was important because in a lot, in many, many cases it was sacred, right? Mm-hmm. So you're maybe perhaps Friend liturgical text or biblical text, yeah. yeah. Uh, so... Um, Monteverdi wanted to use the music to give the words more meaning and um, more em- emote emotion to the to the words. So, so could we say like lyrical? Like yeah. he's making them have a, a melody, being lyrical about it. Yeah. Okay. Being more intentful, I guess. And it's not to say that there weren't composers in the you know twelve hundreds even that didn't do minor word painting of some sort, maybe. Uh, talking about the death of Jesus or, you know, they're not going to be all happy and bright with it, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So yeah. so that existed, but the extent to which Monteverdi did this um, was a huge crossover, uh, a shift in the philosophy of music's purpose and the purpose of text. So um, there are a couple of really great examples of it in this piece. First of all, this piece is sung by a man who's in love with a woman who's betrothed to someone else, right? So his heart is breaking and he's like, I love you. I want to be with you. You know, you're so beautiful. You're a little crazy, but I love you. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of the the gist of what he's saying. And w- one of my favorite parts is when he tells this woman, Amaryllis, that she's uh, as deaf as a snake. Uh, she's fiercer than a snake. And she's also more elusive than a snake. And when he gets to the part where he's talking about it being more elusive, the everything changes. It's it's just a really neat little effect with with the vocals. So we're going to continue listening now to yeah. Cruda Amarillo. Um, Deafer than the asp. You're fiercer. And more elusive. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. It's all like fast and elusive. And that was like huge. People were like, Whoa. all of that. Yeah, all of, I mean, just first of all, the stylistic differences mm-hmm. there were probably pretty shocking. The best part for me is. After he sings that part about, you know, you're so beautiful, you're deafer than the asp, you're fiercer than the asp, you're also more elusive than the asp. And then he's like, I'm sure that I've offended you by speaking this truth to you, 
so let me die in silence. And it, it's just the, the sadness that you can hear through the music when he's like, let me die in silence. It, it's, it's beautiful. Sounds like we have a beginning of a song. (laughs) When, like, right, like the beginnings of like a modern day. Let's have a. We have a bass. We have all this accompaniment, and you have something lyrical happening. Yes, and you know what else about this tune is that it's basically in song form. This is something I wasn't even going to mention today, but it basically does song form A B A. Now, song form can get much more complicated than that, but A where you present the melody and you lay out your main melodic material, then you have a little B section that contrasts slightly with your A section, and then you come back to the A section to wrap everything up. That's what that melody just did. So it's it's fascinating. The other thing that you can hear in a much more clear way in Monteverdi's music is a key. I mean, mm-hmm. that's very much yep. in a key, a, a major key, and it goes through some minor sections that are sat, sound more sad, and so the, the the juxtaposition of the tonality between major and minor is very clear in this in this music. Cool, yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, so I we'll like listen it. to exa- another Palestrina in a moment and another Monteverdi just to wrap things up because it's fun to hear. Okay, some of yeah, those I love that. Yeah, some more good text painting from Monteverdi. Love it. Well, I'll, I'll text paint some wine. Uh, <laughs> Do it on on all y'alls. I wanted to talk a little bit about once we get to the Roman Kingdom, what happens and wine growing's impact ends up really being a part of many different cultures that the Roman kingdom touches today. Present day Spain, Portugal, you think of a lot of Central Europe, a lot of Greece that was conquered by the Romans. We have talked on the show before, so I won't get too far into it, but Romans were traveling all over. They were exchanging information with the Gauls. They were shipping wine all over the place in earthenware vessels known as amphora. Mm. We see shipping start to switch over to, yes, clay. (laughs) We start to see, thank you for that, uh, that switch over to barrels. They realize that the Gauls, um, so present day, like, Frenchies, uh, who would later become <laughs> Frenchies, would were, were rearing things or they were shipping things around in barrels and they thought, wow, that's lighter. They're not as breakable. So we see that happening during the time of the Romans in exchange as well, I sh- should say, with the Celts because they were the ones living in Gaul during that time. What we see a development of is, yes, there, was, there were vines growing in and around Burgundy and some different areas, but an expansive amount of vines and what we would consider present-day famous terroirs are being 
explored at this time. And they're all based on travel routes and rivers. So why is the Rhine region so famous today? Why is the Wachau and regions around, you know, Kremstal and all of that famous because of the Danau, the Danube. You know, we see the Rhine River, we see the Ebro. Why is Rioja famous and Ribera del Duero famous? Because of the Duero Rivers, the Ebro Rivers. Same thing with Chateauneuf de Pop, Rhone, right? You get you get my point. I could name like 900 more, but I won't. We'll keep it, we'll keep it there for now. What becomes interesting is it spreads quickly from exploration and trading and now becomes starts to become latched to religion. Mm. When we see Constantine convert over to Christianity, right? Three hundred something. Yeah, something like that. I think you're right. But what's interesting is we, you know, wine as blood is a very common Christian metaphor that everybody has heard of. That was not invented by the Christians, right? Wine has been blood since antiquity of various very secular tribes, what oh. we would consider religions. Now that Christianity starts to use wine in certain spiritual and rites and part of the sacrament, wine becomes this, this thing that is like moderation. You know, we're not Bacchanalian anymore. <laughs> we're not having those kind of festivals. Yeah. And that becomes a new, a new thing when on the Iberian Peninsula, so between 700s into 1400s, when the Moors were trying to conquer, and, and they did for a while, the majority of the Iberian Peninsula, you see this change of the guard of what wine means. So wine becomes growing vines and making wine ends up becoming like the Moors could say it's illegal, which we all know higher-ups in the Moorish traditions were drinking uh, probably a lot of wine. <laughs> but what they were saying was it's, a, it's an illegal thing, right? Mm -hmm. There were times between the 7 and the 1400s, so that 700-year period, there were times of relative peace. And the, one of the ways that the Moors achieved that was by saying, listen, guys, practice your Christianity all day. Just pay some taxes. <laughs> so they were, you know, <laughs> yeah, pay to make wine, pay to grow grapes. And that ended up being okay for a sh short, very short periods uh, through history. Yeah. What we see a great improvement in winemaking, quote-unquote, was with Charlemagne in the 800s, so we're in common era now. Right now, we know the church at this time is a place of agriculture. It's a place of learning. They have all the flipping time in the world, right? Because what are they doing? They're reading and waking up at four in the morning and learning about things, right? Yeah. So they start to learn where to plant grapes to make quality because they know quality means... I'm rubbing my fingers together. Yeah. Quality means money. Who's going to pay for quality? The nobility. The nobles want to. They've been sinning all over the place. They need to save their souls. So who will they start donating really good lands to and giving a lot of money to? The church. Yeah. Go to heaven, right? <laughs> it's like a, a, a fascinating part of history. But um, Charlemagne passes these laws that are like, hey, listen, don't foot trod grapes. Don't age grapes in animal skins anymore, or wine, excuse me, in mm. animal skins anymore, which you see little things like this happen throughout history. You know, certain people, dukes in the Dukes of Burgundy, they'd say like, don't plant that grape there, plant this different grape there, uproot all this. And you see like quality getting better mm. throughout history as a result of religion, which some people give too much credit to religion. Other people say that's that's not really how it happened. But mm. what a lot of the history books tell us is that 
they did have a lot of time to research and to make sure that things were planted on the right slope with the right drainage. Um, nice. Which is which is pretty cool. Yeah. I guess I could keep saying more. Do you want to taste more wine? We kind of said all we wanted to say about the wine, right? It's kind of it's pretty juniper delicious. It's yeah. pretty delicious. It'd be great with like a with a lamb steak or something. Sure. Some spring lamb. Some Cheetos. <laughs> Some Cheetos because it's mousy. Ah. It's yeah. mousy. I mean. Yeah, it's getting there. Like at the beginning, I could totally oh. tank a glass or two. Yeah. Now. You have to drink it a little too fast. Yeah. yeah. Which I don't I don't like when that happens. No. That's unfortunate. Yeah. But it's okay. It happens, you know. Totally. With the natty wine. The natty wine, you never know. I <laughs> uh, do want to go into I only have a little bit more to talk about about sure. uh, wine, but do you wanna yeah. keep going on some music trains first? Yeah, let's listen to some more um Monteverdi to hear uh well, do you wanna hear Palestrina or Monteverdi? Old or new? Uh, well, let's listen to old first yeah. and get into new if you're cool with that. Okay. Yeah, not at all. So we'll listen to one more Palestrina cut. <laughs> um, and this is, I, I mentioned earlier that Palestrina didn't write a lot of secular music, and he didn't. But he did write some secular music. He wrote some madrigals, which are basically just songs for more than one voice about secular things. So whatever that may be. This uh, is one called Amor Fortuna. And uh, we'll listen to it now. So uh, listen again to how in the main voice, the the, sopran- the top voice, you'll hear a lot of stepwise motion. So if you were to sing what key this is in, which it's not, right? We're in a mode, but what would you guess would be the main note? It's not right. Weird. I know, isn't it? Yeah. quote unquote they don't call it that right that's the end just leave us hanging forever but not <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. right that's just how it was that's Crazy. that was the you know and it seems like it should go down to c but it's not it's in g mixolydian so hmm. g is where you end you don't end you end here you don't end here like you want to now monteverdi would have yeah okay so now we're going to listen to another piece by monteverdi who was the rule breaker. Uh, And this is another very good example of uh, text painting or word painting where, um, again, the subject is death and you hear dissonance almost immediately. And again, this would have been a really shocking sound, certainly for trained musicians back then because they were taught never to do this. So here we go. This is Ariana's Lament or Lamento di Ariana. And uh, here, here we go. 
Oh, and by the way, the words um, of Ariana's lament, uh, let me die. (laughs) Okay, that's how it starts. So here you go. The first thing I think of is opera. Rightfully so. Uh, Opera was invented in the Baroque era, and Claudio Monteverdi wrote the earliest opera that's still performed around the world yearly. Uh, It's it's called uh, L'Orfeo. Okay. And based off of Orpheus, and uh, that opera is still to this day performed. It's not the first opera that was ever written. There were some operas called opera that were before that, but they aren't in the modern repertory. But Monteverdi wrote the very first lasting opera. And opera will talk about some... In fact, on my notes, I wrote must mention opera because uh, Monteverdi was so, uh, I guess, lack of a better term, instrumental in the success of opera and the development of opera as its own genre. Wow. Mm -hmm. And obviously, text painting is a huge part of what happens in opera, conveying the story and using the music to help to help tell the story. Wow. That's gorgeous. So it's it's really amazing stuff when you think about just those two changes using dissonance at will. Okay. So not conforming to the rules of when dissonance can be used, using dissonance at will and that version of dissonance, let's say, because we've heard much more dissonance stuff lately, right? Yep. Uh, so using dissonance at will around the year 1600 and having the music serve the text as opposed to the text serving the music. Those are the two things that Monteverdi did that changed the course of a much older style of music that had been around for centuries into the way uh, modern music would come to sound and the way pop music sounds nowadays, too. So, Dude, you just totally set me up. Did you mean to do that? I didn't, but Gosh, let's hear it. nice work. Uh, Love well, it. Because <laughs> I was going to start talking about how this European, you know, we've gone through history. We've gone from kind of not talking too much about Egyptians, but the Minoans, the Mycenaeans, ancient Greece, Etruscans, Romans— Moors slash Iberian Peninsula. We, you know, we go on to, I briefly, very briefly touched on monasteries. There's so much more to talk about there. Maybe you and I could have a different, we could have a um, secular versus, you know, maybe you have a sacred episode and I have a monastery episode. We could talk about all the contributions, which would be super fun. But I was about to go on to the new world. But yeah. I think we'll save that for another episode. Why? Because it's, yes, thank you, Europe. Yeah. But I guess I will just say that, you know, when people started to try to find the quote-unquote new world, and they, you know, in the latter part of the 1400s, early 1500s, pack up the grapevines, pack up other things, ship out. They got to the island of Madeira. They went Obviously, the Canary Islands have been discovered long before this time. Mm -hmm. And 
I guess I'll leave it as a cliffhanger because wow. from there we go to the new world and that's just a whole nother episode. That's a whole nother episode. Amazing. Well, I'm going to need a little more wine, that mousy mouse wine if I'm going to cheers you with some Do you have anything else Ritzina. in your fridge? I do. So Emily has so graciously gone to her refrigerator and poured leftover sikele, which is from mm. uh, Canina Marilina. Uh, it's a grape from Sicily that is called Grecanico, and it is just has a really brief amount of skin contact, about, you know, give or take a uh, half a day. And what's fun about this wine is, A, it's not mousy. B, it's, <laughs> it's not really ancient. I mean, skin contact is a, a fairly ancient thing, but there's surely some temperature control here, and I think it's done in stainless steel. Um, but you've talked a lot about texture, you know, like mm-hmm. the lyrical nature of... Uh, what did you call it? Textural text painting. I mean, the layers that we could talk about with texture of the history of wine. I just tried to make this was not remotely succinct. You saw me like blowing holes all over the place, just like (laughs) you know, the the it's a big gun trying to shoot a clay pigeon. It's hard to not get yourself caught in like a catch twenty two because there are times where we just don't have the facts and so we take our our best guess, but Here's to Euro beginnings. To Euro beginnings and scores of pours. Scores and pours. Mm. Easy, kind of butterscotchy. Very butterscotchy. Kind of Werther'sy. Yeah. I get just the littlest amount of texture mm-hmm. from that skin contact. Just yeah. the smallest amount, but very clean, very easy drinking. Yep. Orange wine. Thanks for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode, a playlist, a wine list at patreon.com slash scores and pours. And we're on Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Pony up, people. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. 